Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, uh, Grant Memorial. Uh, my name is Cam, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to dig into a difficult passage this morning as we continue walking through the gospel according to Mark. Uh, for those of you who joined us last week, our text forced us to answer the question, what are we going to do with Jesus? And we saw three possibilities modeled by various groups in the text about what our response to Jesus and his ministry can be. We can be dissenters, we can be seekers, or we can be followers of Jesus and the work that he is doing in the world. Now, today's passage uh, continues that narrative, showing us the responses of both Jesus' own family and the rulers from Jerusalem to what Jesus was doing, and we get to hear Jesus respond to their responses. So would you turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to read this morning from verse 20 to 35. Mark 3, starting at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around uh, him, and, he, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us, challenge us, and encourage us through it this morning. Amen. So last week, our text ended with Jesus on a mountaintop, right? Calling 12 of his disciples to serve as apostles, and he commissioned them to join in his ministry of teaching and casting out demons. Well, our text picks up today with them coming down from the mountaintop to eat some sandwiches. Now, I understand that the text doesn't specifically say sandwiches. It simply says that their intention was to eat. However, I want us to picture them coming down from the mountaintop to grab a nice big deli sandwich, maybe corned beef on rye with a pickle perhaps, 
for lunch. And, and the reason I want us to picture sandwiches as opposed to something else is because in our text today, the author uses a literary device known as the sandwich technique. And I want us to notice and remember the significance of this stylistic device. And if, whenever we read this text, we're picturing sandwiches, in our minds we'll be sure to remember the sandwich technique that Mark is employing here. Now, what is the sandwich technique, you may ask? Well, the sandwich technique, or intercalation as it's properly known, is inserting or placing one story or encounter within or in the middle of another story. It's sandwiching one story with another. And the point of this technique is that through the packaging of the stories together, the reader is invited to let the two stories speak into or interpret each other. The, the point or lesson of each story is accentuated by the story within it or the story that surrounds it. Now, uh, we will come across this technique a number of times throughout Mark. And by noticing this, when it comes up, we'll be better equipped to catch the full meaning or point of what it is that we're reading. This technique is not accidental, but it's important for us to understand what the author is trying to say. And so visually, our text today actually looks like this. Uh, story A or uh, part one of story A is verses 20 and 21. And then story A continues, part two, at verse 31 to 35. Well, in the middle of story A, we find story B, which is verses 22 to 30. Right? So, so story number one is Mark 3, 20, 20 to 21 and 31 to 35. Right? This is one cohesive story about Jesus' family and their response to his ministry, as well as Jesus' response to their response about him. And the second story, Mark 3, 22 to 30, the one in the middle, an encounter between Jesus and some scribes, is interjected intentionally to add meaning to the first story. Fun, right? All the English majors are excited, the rest not so much. But for today, uh, while the text is written in the order that we read it earlier, what we're going to do is we're going to study each uh, passage on its own, A and then B, and then we'll finish by bringing the two together, asking the question, how is this first story enhanced by the second? Okay? And, and also, I think what this does for us is from now on, every time you read this text, and you picture the disciples coming down off the hill attempting to reach at a platter of deli sandwiches, you'll remember, don't forget to notice the sandwich in the text. So, now that we know what it is that we're looking at, let's start with story number one, which begins in verse 20. Then, Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat the delicious sandwiches that were there. So, as we mentioned, they all came down from the mountain and they're immediately mobbed, right? Just as they had been before they went up on the mountain in the first place. The chaos from the previous passage continues as seekers press in to receive healing from Jesus and as religious leaders lean in to accuse Jesus of blasphemy and all sorts of other things. Verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. 
for they said he is out of his mind. Now this passage that we're reading today is chock full of difficult statements, confusing comments and attitudes, and perhaps none more difficult than this. Jesus' family, wherever they were at the time, Nazareth perhaps, upon hearing the reports of what he was doing, healing, challenging the authorities, inciting mobs, concluded that Jesus must have gone mad and he must be stopped. Let's ourselves think about that for a second. You see, last week we considered where we are among these three categories of reactions to Jesus, the dissenters, the seekers, and followers. Well, here we read that Jesus' own family found themselves among the dissenters. They wanted Jesus stopped. Can you believe that? They concluded that they needed to go and get him and make him stop before things got worse. Now, we don't know their rationale completely. If they were protecting themselves, the family name, their reputation, right? This certainly would have been embarrassing for them if their own family member was a crazy man, upending and making enemies of the religious elite. Or perhaps they thought they were protecting him. He's going to get himself killed, right? He needs to stop, which is true, actually. Uh, Spoiler alert, he does get himself killed. We don't know their motives, but the strange takeaway here is that Jesus' own family doesn't believe in him, or at least in the message that he is teaching. Jesus' own family were not Christians, were not followers, but were rather dissenters standing against his ministry, at least at this point. Now, just as an aside, this difficulty is actually a very good argument against the idea believed in some circles that the New Testament was an invention of the church in the second century. That this Christ character was invented by the church or embellished by the church and is in fact fictional. Well, aside from countless historical and historiological and sociological proofs to the commentary, a text like this helps to negate this argument. Because no one would create a Messiah figure whose own family doesn't even believe in them. Right? That those who were closest to him didn't trust his words. And no one, especially the Catholic Church, who historically sought to honor Jesus' family, especially his mother, would paint them in this light as those who themselves didn't have faith in him. You just don't create a hero whose family thinks they're disturbed. In fact, what we do see in history is that the Catholic Church, centuries later, tried to change this original text to shine a better light on the family. Because the original just doesn't accomplish that. However, the text that we read today, the original text, far from presenting a sanitized picture of Jesus' family, tells us that their immediate response to his ministry was disbelief and a desire to seize him, forcefully remove him, and make him stop. Because in their estimation, he had gone mad. Now, it is here that the next encounter is uh, intercalated into the original story. So we're going to actually skip over verse 22, and, 22 to 30 and continue in verse 31 to complete story A. Uh, verse 31 to 32. Then... Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call 
to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So, Jesus' family did what they said they would do. They traveled from wherever they were, and they found Jesus and came to seize him and bring him home with them. And, and the crowds relayed this message, right? He is, your, your family is looking for you because they knew the honor that they were due as his family. Now, if Jesus' family's opinion of him wasn't enough of a shock, the shocking words continue especially for anyone who tends to believe that family is the strongest bond there is. Jesus replies to their request. Verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. These are difficult words, right? Most of us would expect that Jesus would have responded to his family, right? Wow, my family is here. Move out of the way. Make room for them. Of course I'll listen to what they have to say. But he doesn't. Instead, he challenges their assumptions about family. Now, please don't misunderstand the text. Jesus is not teaching that biological family does not matter, Right? Jesus, throughout his ministry, emphasized personal obedience to his own parents, Luke 2. He taught of the importance of commitment in marriage in Mark 10. He entrusted uh, the care of his own mother when he, or he ensured the care of his own mother when he passed in John 19. We know that Jesus honored the family unit that he as creator instituted. As R.C. Sproul says of this, says, these words, which seem slightly rude on the surface, were not a denial or repudiation by Jesus of his mother and brothers. Instead, they are a profound teaching about union with Christ. Jesus declared that those who believe in him and do God's will have a relationship with him that is closer than the blood relationships between parents, children, and siblings. We must never lose sight of the fact that we are bound to Jesus by mighty mystical cords that cannot be broken. So, Jesus is not diminishing the importance of family. Rather, he's emphasizing the importance of the family of God. This isn't a question of value. It's actually a question of priority. As important as family is, he says, the family of God is more important because the family of God is eternal. And while our earthly families may stay intact for 60 or 70 years at most, it's our status in the family of God that will last forever. So for those who are unified with Christ, our primary family is not who we live with or who we fought for the remote with growing up, but rather those we are bound to through Christ. And this is so important because I think the mantra of priorities among North American Christians looks like this. God, family, church. Right? People proudly list these priorities on social media accounts and we celebrate and encourage this commitment. In fact, many don't even list church or God's family at all, right? It's God, family, football, tacos, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, neighbors, go Blue Bombers, right? Like we have this big list of stuff. But the teaching of the Bible 
and especially that of the New Testament, unanimously looks like this. And I know this will make people uncomfortable. God, church, family. Loving the family of God, the church, is unanimously our priority in the New Testament. Right? There are very few passages about our role within our biological families. But texts on loving the brethren are almost tiresome to hear by the end of the New Testament. Now, in some instances, for some blessed people, the family of God and biological family could be the same. Right? If your family follows the Lord, they're included in the family of God. That's a wonderful thing. But biological family, even in that instance, doesn't gain priority over the rest of the brethren. Right? If someone in the church needs help of some sort, it shouldn't change your response based on if you're blood-related or not. Think about that. If someone in the church needs help, it shouldn't change your response if you're blood-related or not. Think about that. If you're like me, that hurts. Now again, I, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Right? Yes, we must love our families. God has entrusted us with them. They are the neighbors that God has placed in our lives to love as we love ourselves. They are, in many cases, our primary mission field or primary partners of the gospel. But Jesus here reminds us that our physical birth is not our primary identity when we have been reborn. Right? Our last name is not as important as our eternal name. It's exactly why Jesus in John 3 tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. His physical birth was not the most important. It was his spiritual rebirth into the family of God that would save him and last forever. And so if this is the case, we need to rethink the reason that God gave us biological families. Right? Friends, the reason we have family in the first place is to glorify God. Right? The, the goal of marriage isn't simply to have a good marriage. Or the goal of kids isn't simply to have kids and raise them well. No, the goal of life, of everything according to Jesus, is to love God with everything that we are and have. To know and be known by him. To become more like him for the glory of God the Father. And so the gift of family is a tool to help achieve that end. Right? God would never give us a gift that competes with his ultimate desire for us. No, he gave us spouses and siblings and children so that we could better achieve that end of knowing and loving God. So if you are married, your primary goal as a spouse is to help your spouse become more like Jesus. Helping them to love God with everything they are and have and to press in deeper into their role in the family of God. And if you have kids, your primary goal as a parent is to help them come to a, a saving knowledge of Jesus, that they would join his family and forsake all things, including your own family if necessary, for the kingdom of God and his glory. 
right? And, and as we push one another towards holiness for the time that we have together, whether that's 20 or 40 or 60 years, God uses us as little teams along with others in the family of God to together extend that message outward. But church, we must remember that the kingdom of God doesn't exist for our families. Rather, our families exist for the kingdom of God. Or as theologian Joseph Hellerman says, the family of God is not here to serve the interests of our family. Rather, our families are here to serve the family of God. So if your biological family is taking precedent over the family of God, if your allegiance is to them over your spiritual family that you've been reborn into, or if your family keeps you from pursuing God with everything, or if you use family as an excuse to keep one another from fully following Christ, you are misusing the tool and are in danger of turning the gift of family into an idol. Jesus here looks around at those in the family of God and says, this is my primary family. Those who do the will of God. Those whose purpose is the same as mine. While I may share the same DNA as those on the outside calling for me, who do not believe in me, who are not sitting at my feet, I am bound closer to those at my feet, on the inside, following me, no matter if their DNA is my own or not. Now, there is way more to say about this than we have time for. In fact, I had an extra four pages of notes that I cut last night. But for today, the point we must take from this text is the significance of the body of Christ. We are not simply strangers. We are family and primary family at that. So the challenge to those who believe that, that blood is thicker than water, the family, you know, those who say the family is more important than anything else, we need to know that blood is nowhere near as thick as the Spirit of God who binds the family of God together in Christ Jesus. And to those who are alone on this journey when it comes to family, may you be encouraged that you have a massive family, a family for life, a family for eternity who is there to walk the journey with you. Like I said, there's more to be said, but we need to move on to our second story, the meat of this sandwich. So uh, we've seen the response to Jesus of his own family, and how they think he has gone mad. Well, here in this middle section, we see the scribes take it a step further, not describing Jesus as mad, but declaring that he is, in fact, bad. <laughs> Picking up in verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So the first thing we notice in this text is that the religious leaders have escalated Jesus' file, right? So far, it's just been the local religious authorities that Jesus has had to deal with. But in this text, we read about the scribes sent from Jerusalem, right? The, the word about what Jesus was doing and saying had spread, and the religious authorities in Jerusalem, like the really big wigs of Judaism, sent some of their own people to Galilee to investigate. But it wasn't simply an information-collecting mission. This was a mission to undermine Jesus. 
Right? They weren't just there, but they came with a charge against him to try and influence the seekers and the followers away. And the charge they make is that Jesus is doing what he's doing under the influence or by the power of Satan. Notice that they're not refuting his deeds. Right? There's no denying that Jesus is healing and is casting out demons. They don't claim that he's a fraud or he's tricking people. Jesus is actually healing and casting out demons, and they don't even try to claim otherwise. But what they do is say that the miraculous things he's doing are not of God, but are of the enemy. So as I mentioned before, they up the ante, right? Jesus' family thought he should stop because he was mad. But the religious rulers thought he should stop because he was bad. So that's the claim, the charge from the rulers of, of Judaism. And what we read in the text is Jesus' response to this charge. He responds to their claim in three ways. First, he questions their logic. He provides correction. Secondly, he shares the truth. He provides clarification about what he's doing. And thirdly, he warns them about their unbelief. He provides a, a warning. And as is his usual way, Jesus uses analogy to illustrate the truth. <clears throat> so the first thing Jesus does is corrects them. Verse 23 to 26. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So Jesus starts by pointing out the folly of their logic, right? He says it makes no sense that the demonic powers would be used to cast out demons, right? You've seen demons flee in my presence. You've seen the power of Satan be extinguished in the lives of people. Why on earth would Satan attack himself? Right? You don't light more candles if you want to extinguish the light. You don't just score goals on your own team. Right? Jesus has a good point here. This is faulty logic, and their charge just doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus turns it around, and he clarifies what is happening. He says, I'm not fueled by Satan. In fact, I am fighting against Satan. Verse 27, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. In this mini parable, Jesus shares about his mission. Right? He refers to Satan as the strong man. And this strong man has plundered and taken ownership of many possessions. Now, what are Satan's possessions? Well, it seems to me that his possessions are those whom he has possessed. Right? Through his demons, he has taken captive men and women as his own possessions. But Jesus has come to release the captives. He, he says this himself in Luke 4 when he claims the prophecy of Isaiah 61 for himself and his mission. This is what he says. He says, this is why I've come. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has come to proclaim freedom for those who are in prison, to set the captive, the oppressed, free. And, And to do that, to plunder Satan's possessions, to take back what rightfully belongs to God, he first needs to bind up Satan. Right? Contrary to what the religious leaders suggest, Jesus is at war with Satan. He is binding him up, defeating the evil powers, extinguishing his power, his strength, so that all may hear and receive the message of freedom that he has come to bring. I am not for Satan, Jesus says. I am the champion who will defeat the enemy for everyone. I have come to bind up the strong man. And then, rather than stopping to take questions at that point, uh, Jesus issues a severe warning to the scribes and in turn to all of those who are trying to determine what they will claim about Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 28 and 29. He says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now this statement or teaching of Jesus has been referred to in Christian circles as the unpardonable sin. Have you heard that before? And for centuries, this particular verse, along with its counterparts in Matthew 12 and Luke 12, have caused significant concern for believers regarding whether they have committed this sin or not. Right, books have been written about this. And people, in attempting to put skin on this text, what does it mean? How do I avoid that? How do I know? Have concluded that this unpardonable sin is murder or adultery or unforgiveness, all sorts of other things. Well, let us ask the text what it says, what Jesus is referring to when he says that there's one sin that cannot be forgiven. And when we look at the text, it actually starts off by encouraging us rather than scaring us. Verse 28 says, Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. So the first encouragement is that there is no specific action that would disqualify you from the opportunity to receive eternal life. Murder can be forgiven. Adultery can be forgiven. Falling into the same sin over and over again can be forgiven. Jesus says people can be forgiven all their sins. This should encourage us and release us from the stress of wondering if we've committed this unpardonable sin. There is nothing you can do that Christ's death cannot atone for. As Romans 8, 38, 39 says, For I'm convinced that nothing, neither death nor life, angels or demons, the present, the future, any powers, height or depth, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Friends, that is good news. No commandment broken, no mistake or error, no questionable past eliminates us from God's love. Next, Jesus goes on to define what it is. And he calls this unpardonable sin in verse 29, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what does that mean? 
Well, let's start with blasphemy. Blasphemy means to speak a word against God. And of this, I'm sure that we are all guilty. From sacrilegious comments to using the Lord's name in vain, we've probably all committed blasphemy at some point. But thankfully, this particular eternal sin is not any blasphemy, but rather what Jesus calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In fact, Luke in Luke 12:10, Jesus specifically says that speaking a word against Jesus is forgivable. Right? It actually says blasphemy against Jesus is okay, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not. Well, why is that the case? Well, Jesus was on earth, how? As a man. And so blaspheming him as a man while he lived on the earth, calling him out for something, was not, in fact, blasphemy, but was slander. An interesting distinction, I know, but, but that sin Jesus is speaking about is blasphemy directed at the Holy Spirit, speaking against what it is that the Holy Spirit does, which is what? Right, what, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, according to John 15, out of Jesus' mouth, the role of the Holy Spirit is to testify about Jesus. That's the primary role of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is what points people in the direction of Christ, that they may come to him for salvation. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to reject his message about Jesus. It's to call him a liar to deny the work and word of the Spirit of God. I like the way that Christian author and pastor Tim Challies puts it. He says, Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is to willingly and knowingly deny the work of the Spirit accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit is who enabled Jesus to come to earth as a man. Luke 1.35 the Holy Spirit is who empowered Jesus in his ministry, Matthew 12, 28. The Holy Spirit is who raised Jesus to life again, Romans 6, 4. The Holy Spirit is who testifies about Christ, John 15, 26. The Holy Spirit is who convicts of sin and points men to Jesus, John 16, 8. And so to reject the work and word of Jesus Christ is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who has enabled and empowered that work, right? It's to call the Spirit a fraud in his work and a liar in his conviction. It's to deny what God himself has done and what God himself says about himself. And the reason that this is eternal is that if we attribute what God has done to something else, a made-up story, the actions of a lunatic, demonic activity, whatever it may be, we will never come to a place of repentance. And we will never receive the eternal life that God has for us. Forgiveness is not extended if it is not acknowledged through repentance. Right? In a sense, the only unpardonable sin... The only sin that can keep you away from God forever is the rejection of him and the eternal life that he offers. It's the consistent, willful rejection of God and his saving work to the point where our hearts become so hard we can't believe the truth. Now, notice that Jesus did not say to the scribes that they had committed the unpardonable sin. Right, That their words, that their questioning of the Spirit, he didn't say they had committed it. He was warning them. They were getting awfully close. 
If you deny what the Spirit is doing through me, if you wrongly attribute God's work with the work of the enemy, you are on a dangerous path to reject God's plan outright. So more encouragement from a scary passage. If the unpardonable sin is a willing, consistent rejection of God by attributing the work of the Spirit through the person of Christ to something else, it means that salvation is still available to all if we confess Jesus as Lord and receive what the Spirit of God has told us and done through him. Right? That salvation is available. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It also means that we cannot accidentally commit the unpardonable sin. Right? There's no need to worry that, that you did something or said something unknowingly that will have eternal implications. It just doesn't work that way. And the final encouragement to those who have struggled with this passage and maybe are still struggling with this passage, wondering, ah, have I committed some kind of sin like this? I would say that if you are concerned at all that you have committed the unpardonable sin, that concern itself is pretty good proof that you haven't. Because a hardened heart towards God, a heart that has rejected what the Spirit does, the truth about Jesus, wouldn't be concerned. A heart that is soft to the Word of God about this very theme is a heart that has not been so hardened as to never receive the gift of eternal life. There is a sin that leads to death. And we must be aware. Heed the warning. But we can be encouraged that through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, freedom and forgiveness is available to us. Now, we've reached the end of our time in the Word this morning, but before we go and eat our sandwiches for lunch, we must revisit the sandwich technique employed here. So how are these two stories made better or enhanced by being linked together. What do these stories have to say about one another? Well, in this case, it's the story in the middle that adds to the first story. It's the meat that speaks into the meaning of the bread. You see, if we were to just simply read these accounts separately, it would exclude Jesus' family from the warning of the consequences of rejecting him. We would limit our focus of this, this warning to those who simply attribute the Holy Spirit's acts to Satan, right? We would continue to pile on the bad guys, these religious leaders, and miss the fact that those who deny the work of the Spirit in Christ, no matter how close to him they seem, are in danger, are in the same danger as the scribes, right? As William L. Lane notes, he says, this interpolation suggests that those in Jesus' family, intercalation it should be, uh, in Jesus' family who declare that he is mad are not unlike the scribes who attribute his extraordinary powers to an alliance with Beelzebul, the prince of demons. There is an intentional parallel between the insensitivity and unbelief of the scribes and the attitude of those who should have been closest to him. Right? These are not two distinct passages to be read separately. They're, in fact, the same. 
Those who reject Jesus as bad or mad or any other reason are in danger of hardening their hearts to him so much that they will miss his salvation. And so church, may we be careful of what we do with Jesus. May we not rest on our laurels thinking, I'm fine, I was born in church. Or my parents raised me Christian. Or, or I go to church every week. None of these things matter if we don't take Jesus seriously and choose to follow him, accepting the truth of the work of the Spirit of God through the life of Jesus Christ. Friends, salvation is available. Freedom is available. Jesus has come to bind the enemy to set us free and take us back with him to the Father where we will be sealed in his love and in his family. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for difficult texts. We thank you for things that we wrestle, we need to wrestle with, Lord. But we also thank you for the assurance of your salvation and the forgiveness that you pour out on us. God, may we be people who rest in our security in you, knowing, God, that you have done everything God, help us to know that you have bound the enemy. You have bound the strong man and you are inviting us to follow you. And God, may we take that call seriously. May we choose to be followers in a world of dissenters and seekers. God, thank you for calling us to you. Thank you for calling us into a family of God. And I pray that we wouldn't take that family for granted. We love you. We thank you for your gifts. Help us to experience and use them well. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.